0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 1st of July 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month, we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro-treat for naked-eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers, and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist or particle physicist. So we'll zoom over to Adelaide right now to get your July sky guide from Dr. Ian Musgrave. Hello, Ian.
1: Hello, Brendan.
0: Fantastic to be speaking with you again, Ian. I'm really looking forward to hearing your July Sky Guide and your special tangent today. So, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the month of July?
1: Lots of things. July is quite an interesting month. For a quick overview, Earth is at haphelion when it's first from the sun. Saturn and Jupiter become far more prominent in the late evening skies ahead of opposition next month. Venus is now very easy to see in the evening twilight and has some very interesting encounters and uh, like Mars last month it's close to the Beehive Cluster. In the beginning of the month Mercury is very good in the morning sky and we've also got the Southern Delta Aquarius meteor shower this month. So I'm going to start off with the Moon. So the 2nd of july is the last quarter moon on the 10th of july we have the new moon which will be excellent for viewing the constellations july 17th is the first quarter moon july 24 is the full moon and on july 31 we have a blue last quarter moon if you remember a blue moon is these days defined as two moons falling in the same month and we normally talk about a blue Full moons, because they're quite obvious, but all of the moons, uh, all of the moons, be they first quarter, last quarter, or new moon, can have times when you get two of the moon phases falling in the same month. And this month, the, tur- the turn is for the blue last quarter moon. Mind you, the blue last quarter moon is quite um, uh, boring in the sense that uh, very few people are going to be up early and in the morning to see the last quarter moon anyway. Uh, on the other hand, the last quarter moon is still quite visible after sunrise. So if you're up around about sunrise on the mornings of the second and third, the almost last quarter moon, and then uh, on the thirty-first, if you're up in the mornings and it's clear, you'll be able to see the second last quarter moon of the month. And of course, we've got the apogee. Uh, the moon is at apogee on July sixth and at perigee when it's closest to the Earth on July 21. So that's that's the shenanigans of the Moon, and that will give you an idea of when it's gonna be really good to look for the constellations and the clusters, and when to look for the Moon catching up with the planets. So let's first talk about the evening sky. If you've been out looking at the evening twilight, we've been having some spectacular sunsets recently. And Venus is now dominating the evening sky from about 30 minutes out after sunset to about uh, nearly 90 minutes out of the sunset. Although, to see it for the full one and a half hour after sunset, you really do need a level horizon without lots of trees or mountains in the way. But I've been able to see a Venus from as early as uh, 15 minutes after sunset. But 30 minutes after sunset, it's really blazingly obvious this bright white object. Above the western horizon in the twilight boat. It's really quite fantastic. Now, Venus is following in Mars' path, and like Mars, it passes in front of the Beehive Cluster. So, the Beehive Cluster is now uh, fairly low uh, to the horizon, so it'll be bit, it's, it's too hard to see with the unaided eye, but it is still quite easily visible in binoculars. However, even in binoculars, you may find that bright white Venus will make it very hard to get the fainter members of the beehive cluster when it moves in front of it. But nonetheless, this will be a very spectacular view in both binoculars, even low-power binoculars, or a telescope. Again, if you've got a wide-field telescope objective, you'll be able to see uh, Venus embedded in uh, in the jewels of the beehive cluster. And if you have a high-power objective, even though you won't see most of the b it clustered stars, you'll notice that Venus now has a gibbous moon shape. So it's very uh, definitely no longer a uh, disk, but it's more looking more like a, a waning moon heading on towards its crescent phase, which will occur uh, much later in the year. But you'll also notice is that Venus is coming closer and closer to Mars. And so it follows Mars on its track, and it's like Mars. It's passed through the, the BI cluster, but that doesn't stop there. And so you'll notice it coming closer and closer as the month moves on. And then it's joined by the thin crescent moon. So on the 12th of July, you'll see Mars and Venus quite close together. And uh, so they'll be about uh, a little bit over a finger-width apart. And about three to four finger widths from Venus is the thin crescent moon, and that will be a spectacular sight in the evening twilight. Great. And so, so I'd be probably, you probably, know, it'll be really good around about an hour after sunset. Half an hour at sunset, the moon and Venus will be quite obvious, but Mars doesn't really become obvious until about an hour later. And again, Venus can be uh, visible for uh, nearly... 90 minutes after sunset, depending on what your horizon's like. So it'll really bring out Mars if you're looking that late. And then on the following night, Venus and Mars are at their closest, when they're half a finger-width apart. So on this night, they'll not only fit into a binocular field, but they'll fit into a a moderate-power field of of a small telescope. On the night before when you've got the lineup of Mars Venus and the moon the three will just fit into the field of view of the 12 10 by 50 binoculars so you'll be able to see them quite nicely and if you've got a really uh, wide field objective for your te- for your telescope you should be able to see the Venus and the edge of the crescent moon together so that's going to be something really nice over the nights of the 12th and the 13th Right, And then Mars and Venus move apart and head their separate ways. Mars, uh, after being almost a a hand span and a half above the uh, horizon at 90 minutes after sunset, that is astronomical twilight, but it's fully dark, for many months now, is now beginning to sink towards the horizon. Mars is heading towards the bright star Regulus, as is Venus. Now, Venus encounters Regulus on the 21st, so you'll see them a little under a finger width apart. So you'll have Regulus and Venus in the sickle of Leo and with Mars just below that. And then on the 30th, Mars will encounter Regulus. So you'll have some nice catch-ups between bright planets and bright star, which will look very nice indeed okay so those are those are the inner planets. What about the outer planets, Saturn and Jupiter? Well, Saturn is now rising quite early, but again, it's a while before it's high enough to see really reasonably, reasonably easy and If you want to view in the telescope, it's probably best to start looking around about midnight. It's quite good. But you'll find that to get the best, crispest, clearest view, you want it to have as high above the northern horizon as possible. And, that you, and that's occurring at least in the beginning of the month, a little bit after midnight, and by the end of the month, around about 11 o'clock. So, But if you're quite just satisfied with seeing the beautiful ring planet under any condition, all this month is a good time to, uh, to view Saturn in a telescope. And you'll see Jupiter below it. Again, Jupiter's rising well before midnight now. In the early part of the month, you'll get the best view of Saturn and Jupiter around about 11 o'clock. Again, at the beginning of the month, Jupiter isn't really high in the sky for telescopic observation until the early morning. Again, if you don't particularly care about getting the clearest, crispest views for astrophotography, and you just want to see the rings and the moons, then from about uh, 11 o'clock to midnight, you can start using your telescope. But for best astrophotography, at the beginning of the month, it's around about three o'clock to four o'clock. And by the end of the month, it's about two o'clock is the best time to do your astrophotography. Now, just like last month, the moon visits the pair of Jupiter and Saturn, and so you will see a, a planet dance as the moon climbs down the ladder of the planets. So starting from the 23rd, you'll have the 23rd, you'll have uh, the waxing moon, Saturn and Jupiter. Then on the 24th, the full moon is very close to Saturn. On the 25th, the, uh now waning moon is between Saturn and Jupiter on the uh, 26th the moon's now close to Jupiter and on the 27th you now have have the line of Saturn Jupiter and the moon so that would be very nice to see in the late evening. I was able to catch some of the of the June planet dance and it was very nice to see but now it'll be uh, for July that will occur much earlier in the night not leave it we're talking about 10 o'clock so so that's the evening sky so let's turn to the morning sky now in the morning sky saturn and jupiter still easily visible saturn's in in the west and jupiter's in in the north Uh, and as the month goes on saturn will sink closer and closer to the horizon and jupiter will begin begin to move uh, more western westward. and if you art up at 10 o'clock to watch the planet dance but we're getting up at around about five o'clock you can see the uh, the moon and planet dance in the morning as well. But Fleet Mercury draws our attention. In the beginning of the month Mercury is quite prominent in the early morning twilight. It's still visible below Aldebaran so you have a very good guide to Mercury. At the very beginning of July it's still climbing a high it'll be highest around the 5th and then it begins to sink back towards the horizon and then on the 8th the thin crescent moon will be very close to Mercury of course if you're watching beforehand you can watch the uh, the crescent moon pass through the high 80s cluster then catch up to Mercury so that will uh, keep you very entertained in the early morning but the the morning of the 8th where the moon and the and Mercury are close together will be truly excellent and you'll have Aldebaran and the Clay above that making it a beautiful morning sight and you've got of course Orion off to the left of this then after that Mercury sinks rapidly towards the horizon uh, and by the 15th it's best seen half an hour before sunrise whereas for the 8th and uh, at the 8th you'll be able to see Mercury an hour before sunrise when the sky is relatively dark, it's quite uh, easy to see. But one thing you might find interesting is that Mercury is getting brighter. It's sinking towards the horizon but it's get- and getting deeper into the twilight, but it's also getting brighter. Mercury is going through towards its crescent phase. And if you've got a very clear eastern horizon and a small telescope and a good high-power eyepiece, you should be able to see towards the end of- of the second week of July, um, uh, Mercury becoming more and more uh, crescent-shaped. And then it disappears into the twilight and will appear in the evening sky, for August. It's cool. Well, it is very cool. (laughs) The Earth's at at aphelion. We may have now gone past the solstice and the stays are getting uh, uh, longer but Earth is, will be furthest from the sun in early July. And for us, it's going to get a lot colder before the Earth starts warming up again. Yep. So remember, if you're going out to look at the stars late at night and you're or you're getting up early in the morning, please rug up. It will be cold. It will be frosty. <laughs> yeah. I did mention the stars and uh, the meteor shower. So between last quarter and first quarter, there's a good opportunity to look at the sky. Now, I've been extolling the virtue of Scorpius for several months now, but again, Scorpius is now quite high. It's in the uh, mid evening, it's a really good height above the horizon, and then around about 10 o'clock, it's almost at the zenith. So it's in the darkest part of the sky. The clusters are really obvious, and also the teapot of Sagittarius is now really visible. And of course, that's if you've got the uh, centre of the galaxy there as well. So if you've got a pair of binoculars you can run down the curve of Scorpio going past a nice little cluster, uh, uh, a globular cluster near Antares, then through the false comet down into the sting and between the sting and the spout of the teapot is a, a number of, of wonderful clusters to ex- explore, like the Ptolemy's Cluster and the Butterfly Cluster. And these are bright enough to, to actually see with urinated eye. They look like little fuzz, fuzzy uh, clouds between the sting and, and the, the spout of the teapot. And in binoculars, there, there, there's these wonderful sprinkling of stars that are really nice. I, I, I love uh, looking at that. And next to the lid of the teapot, is the Magnificent globular cluster m22 again if you're out in the dark skies you will see it as a fuzzy uh, dim star but in binoculars it's it's a wonderful little ball of cotton wool and if you've got a, a, a telescope you can resolve that into a little globe of stars now while m22 is is uh, quite famous in the northern hemisphere we've got one better we've got Omega Centauri. Now I've, I've talked in previous episodes of the wonderful globular cluster 47 Buchanah. Omega, Omega uh, Centauri is probably even better and it's very well placed at the moment. If you look for the southern cross and the pointers, if you draw a line between the uh, two pointers and extend that uh, almost perpendicular to the pointers, as you draw another line between Gamma Crucis and uh, Delta Crucis, the two next brightest stars after Alpha and Beta uh, Crucis that form the head of the cross. If You draw a line along through them where the two lines intersect is pretty much where Omega Centauri is. With the unaided eye, again, it looks like a fuzzy star. But if you've got a pair of binoculars, even a small pair of binoculars, you'll see it as a, a fuzzy glowing ball, bigger and brighter than M22. And if you've got a, a decent telescope, you can resolve this into a globe of glowing stars. It's truly one of the wonders of the the sky. And of course, uh, we've still got all the all the other clusters near the False Cross that I was talking about in previous episodes. So on a dark night, with either your eyes or your binoculars, there's so much to see, and it'll be absolutely wonderful. Sounds great. Yeah. Let's finish off with a meteor shower, and this is the Southern Delta Aquariids. Now, the Southern Delta Aquariats uh, run from the 12th of July to the 23rd of August, but they peak this year on Friday, the 30th of July. Now, they're relatively dim meteors, but the problem this year is that the last quarter moon is almost directly on top of the radiant. Although it's a reasonably active shower, this year we're not going to see much you'll start to see a, a few meteors. And then when the, when the last quarter moon rises, the rate will drop off quite spectacularly. So you might see a rate of a meteor every seven, uh, seven minutes, which if you're out in the cold is a long time to wait between <laughs> meteors. <laughs> but, it's, but this year will be really easy to find the radiant because the radiant, if you uh, look to the northeast, it, you'll see Jupiter. Jupiter's really obvious. It's the brightest object in the sky at, at that time. And above it is the bright star, Fomaloo. Again, it's the next brightest thing in, in, in the vicinity, so it's really easy to pick. And the radiant is between Jupiter and Fomaloo. So if the Moon wasn't there, it'd be really easy to, 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 to know where to look and to wait for meteors. But with the Moon, you're not going to see much. It's going to be a long wait between meteors. But If you're really a meteor enthusiast and you want to see a a really nice southern meteor shower, then go outside on on, up. And and you can see them from about 10 o'clock. So unlike the other meteor showers where you really have to wait until dark o'clock, you can see it from about about 10 o'clock, but you won't see very many meteors. And again, the best time is around about 2 o'clock in the morning. But unfortunately, that's when the last quarter moon's risen. And that really dampens because the last quarter moon is so close to the radiant, it really dampens down what you can see. But if you want to go out, hide the moon behind a large object um, so it doesn't ruin your night vision, you might be pleasantly surprised with some nice meteors hey. if you wait. Yeah, why not? Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this month of July?
1: I certainly do, and it's a tangent, I promised, last uh, month. I'm going to talk tonight about SEAL telescopes. Now, animals have really these prodigious feats of navigation. Birds find their way across thousands of kilometres. Bees find themselves uh, fly over uh, tens of kilometres. And it's obvious uh, And marine mammals uh, can traverse featureless uh, ocean wastes over tens to thousands of kilometres. So they must be have some method of navigation. And, of course, uh, they do, and they have a whole range of navigations. For example, the uh, uh, migrating birds can travel thousands of kilometres from home to breeding grounds, and they can use both the, the location of the sun and magnetic fields. And interestingly, we used to think that Magnetic particles in their beaks was what they were using to uh, sense magnetic fields, but, but it turns out it's actually a blue light responsive protein in their eyes called cryptochromes, which are part of the circadian rhythm sensing mechanism. So these these cryptochromes form an internal clock which drives the circadian rhythms, but they also have, uh, and they are in the they are actually in the bird's retinas up where the, where the bird gets most of its light, but these are also the magnetic sensing proteins which is really cool and so they've got uh, memory sun position magnetic fields but birds that navigate at night can also use the stars there are lots of experiments over the years that have shown that they can recognize star patterns and the northern hemisphere birds seem to Fix uh, use star patterns to locate the pole star and navigate by the pole star. But they don't do it in quite the way we might imagine, by, by actually finding recognisable constellations. What they look for is the rotation of the stars, and they use the rotation of the stars to locate the pole star and follow that. And they did an experiment in a um, planetarium where they were able to train the birds to follow Betelgeuse. Instead, by, by making a fake sky where the stars rotated around Betelgeuse rather than Polaris, they were able to get the birds to fly towards uh, or away from uh, Betelgeuse because they, they, when they're, they're traveling south, they don't take themselves away from Polaris, which is really quite cool and bizarre. Now, we know birds have really good eyesight generally, and they've got optics very similar to ours. But what about marine mammals? Uh, And again, marine mammals have to navigate long distances. The ocean has very few visual clues. And it might make sense that for animals that travel at night, they could use the stars to navigate by. Uh, And this is where seals and the seal telescope come in. So seals travel large distances from shore and they often hunt at night. But do they use the stars? Now, again, birds have eyes that are very similar to ours, but uh, but seals, uh, their eyes are adapted to being underwater. And their lenses are very different to ours in that they're almost spherical. So to deal with the refraction of light underwater. So when they pop their heads out of water, the lens doesn't focus the light as well. And so, when the seals are have their heads out of water, they're effectively uh, myopic and astigmatic because of the structure of the lens. So, we've got lens-shaped lens, disc, the, the uh, ellipsoid disc-shaped lens, where theirs is almost a sphere and has not really desirable optical properties. So, how do we determine if, the, if seals can actually see stars and you, and uh, orientate on them? Well. It's fairly easy to to stick birds in a cage inside a planetarium. Seals, not so easy. So what they uh, did was uh, they trained the seals to look up through an empty tube. This is the seal telescope. And to retract its head only when a star appeared over the uh, aperture. So what they did was they, 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 they trained the seals to... Pull their heads back when a star was in the telescope, and they initially did this by uh, artificial stars. So they had an apparatus which we stuck in the end of the seal telescope, which generated a, a star-like object, and they could train the seals on that. And so, and so every time the seal pulled its head away when a real when a, when a star was observed, it got a, a treat, and they could train them so that they could pull their heads back and regularly with a high detection rate and once they knew how well the seals could detect stars or these artificial stars they then tested it on real stars by scanning the sealed telescope across the sky they were able to see if uh, the seals could detect venus which is incredibly bright and they could and uh, if they could detect sirius which is also quite bright and they could. And then with the artificial stars, they were able to determine what was the dimmest star they could see. And the dimmest star is about magnitude 4.4, which is not too shabby. But the point is that the star that most northern hemisphere animals or birds use as a guide, Polaris, is easily detectable by these seals. Now, when I say easily detectable, not necessarily they're not seeing stars as points, What they're probably seeing them is as... Uh, bright, somewhat fuzzy discs. So they're not seeing bright points of light, but they're seeing extended, fuzzy discs of light. So now, those results by themselves can't prevent evidence for na- uh, navigation. Uh, all I can say that is that seals can, should be able to see stars bright enough to allow them to orientate. Remember again, these these are uh, harbor seals and harbor seals swim out and hunt by night, and uh, would be very helpful for them to have uh, visual cues to allow them to swim back to shore or swim out. That's pretty cool, teaching SEALs to detect stars in a SEAL telescope. But it didn't stop there. The, the same people who taught the SEALs to detect seal stars in a SEAL telescope then did something really cool. You know how I said it's kind of difficult to uh, stick... Uh, seals in a planetarium, well, that's exactly what they did. They built a seal pool, they built a planetarium around that and then projected night sky images in the sky and then uh, trained them to uh, follow follow stars. Uh, um, again, and it was big enough that the, the, the seals could swim, so they could see if the seals would swim towards a particular orientation. So they uh, used a laser pointer to get the, to train the seal to swim towards a particular star. Again, they're feeding seals bits of fish, and then they would uh, randomly orientate the dome. But the seals would then, without the help of the laser pointer, continue to swim to the correct star. These are the same people who, who built seal telescope. They built a seal planetarium. Is that cool or what? Amazing. Well, again, the owls, you still have to train the animals in order to be able to work out where they're going, unlike migrating birds. If you just let them go by themselves, they'll fly away from the appropriate um, star. But seals, you have to do a bit of training. That, that, That is absolutely astonishing. So seal telescopes are a thing, and seal planetariums are now a thing too.
0: Fantastic.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, so... We've we've covered seal telescopes. We've, ca- we've covered uh, seal planetariums, and also birds with magnetic eyes. Uh, I think that's a worthy tangent, don't you?
0: It's absolutely a worthy tangent. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblock musgrave Another fantastic view of the July sky, and an insight into the brains of
1: seals. Indeed, indeed. It's astonishing. The world is so fantastic, and, and, and this is just another way that the stars help us understand the world around us.
0: And ourselves.
1: And ourselves, very definitely ourselves.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much,
1: Ian. Good night, mate. Once again, brilliant. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on, and everyone go out and look up. See you later, mate.
0: And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, but we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandel at spaceaustralia.com. And we'll see you in two weeks when we'll be talking with Osgrav and LIGO researcher into black holes and gravitational waves, Isabel Romero-Shaw. See you then. Radio
1: Waves!